Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Dr. Robin Mazumder. Robin is a neuroscientist. He researches how urban environments affect our mental health. It's a really cool and unique episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Please check me out on Instagram, at Noor Kidwai. Uh, also, like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And we're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records, so check them out too. Guys, let's get into this week's episode. My guest this week, Dr. Robin Mazumder. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. I'm here with Dr. Robin Mazumber. Uh, Dr. Robin, thank you for joining me, my man. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, so how, how do you describe yourself? Because uh, I, I've heard, <sighs> I saw on your website, you would say like environmental neuroscientist. Um, but like yeah. one thing that I just love about your work you're trying to like kind of build cities around uh, mental health in mind, mental wellness. And I, I think that's just amazing kind of uh, work. Uh, but like, I'll let you kind of describe yourself for the audience, please. Sure. I guess in my professional life, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm a neuroscientist. I did my PhD in cognitive neuroscience at the University of Waterloo and just finished up um, in October. But my research was really focused on how our environments um, in urban environments, architecture, urban design, how that made people feel. And that interest was inspired by my work as a mental health clinician in uh, community mental health as an occupational therapist, where I worked with people with schizophrenia, depression, you know, across the board from kids to adults. And in the process, I just became quite, you know, interested in how our, the surrounding environments in which we live really you know, interplay with, with our well-being and, and how we can, you know, hopefully build environments that, that facilitate joy. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> hey, like, how, uh, how cool is that, though? And, um, like, from your, like, work, like, because, like, as a neuroscientist, I guess that kind of means, like, you're measuring something, right? So, like, how, mm -hmm. how do you, like, how would you measure well-being when you're talking about, like, different environments we're in? So um, we used wearable technology, which is something that, you know, I've got my Apple watch on. We're all wearing something. Most of us are wearing something these days that measures our physiological um, state from our heart rate variability or our heart rate itself. Um, but I really focus on something called the electroderm sorry, electrodermal activity. <clears throat> it's a bit of a tongue twister, uh, which is also known as a galvanic skin response, which is essentially uh, the rate of your sweat uh, on your palms, which is a pretty good indicator of the state of your uh, arousal or your stress. So we would strap people with these sorts of devices on their wrists and I would bring them out into the real world. I did some research in one of the main studies of my PhD was in London in the UK where I was on fellowship a few years ago and again last year. And uh, we took people to this area with all these tall buildings and we were curious about how building height itself made people feel. That was kind of the focus of my PhD because, you know, cities are building up at a really high rate. And so, 
you know, what does the future look like if all we see are tall buildings? But uh, yeah, that was basically one way I did it. And then the other thing I did was I put people in virtual reality. So we used uh, 360 degree videos, uh, uh, VR headsets and measured the same kind of body reactions and also uh, use psychological questionnaires to really get at what aspects of the environment were causing people to feel distressed. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool. So and like, I guess it is like a lot of like trying to see like how stressful you are around different environments. So like when it came to like the tall buildings, uh, what kind of uh, conclusions did you come back with? Um, you know, people uh, found those settings to be uh, aversive. You know, they weren't as pleasant as the other settings. Um, you know, building height does have an effect in your proximity to a building. So, you know, if you have a tall building and you're here and the closer you are, the more intense this effect is, uh, which some people would refer to as oppressiveness, which is related to a Japanese word called apakukan, which relates to this feeling of being enclosed or claustrophobic. And they actually use it in relation to buildings, you know, so it's interesting to look at this kind of cross-cultural phenomenon and how and how in some cultures is actually something that's named and discussed and, and, and arguably hopefully addressed within how they design their cities. Mm -hmm. So how, uh, yeah. like, what did you learn now? Like, uh, when you're designing a city, like what's a good way uh, to actually like look, I, and I, I know you're not like designing cities at the moment, but yeah. like, uh, if you were to like, Sim city. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Cause like, if we're looking at cities now and like, what's, what are ways that we can actually make them better for our well-being, like um, our, our, our mental health, like keeping that in mind? Well, I mean, I think the pandemic has really forced everybody to consider what it is about their city that they enjoy or maybe even don't like. But, you know, the absence of public life, you know, we're coming back. There's been the waves and we go from lockdown to having, you know, picnic patio parties on, on our streets. And what I observe and I've, I've, I've lived, I was living in London when the pandemic started in, in the UK and I observed a, a change there. And what I loved about that city um, was its street life and how people occupied parks. Um, you know, I went from that to living in Edmonton with my sister in her basement for three months um, to Victoria uh, where I grew up. And, you know, now I'm in Mexico city where I came in December, as I mentioned, and I've, you know, been just observing how people operate and you know at the end of the day we need each other and we need social connection and i think if we consider that as kind of a foundation of how we should build our cities we should consider ways in which design can facilitate connection and how art can facilitate conversations but also just recognize that design itself is not really going to solve the problems you know um black people are still being harassed by the police um indigenous people you know you know, we, we got that news um, of those kids a couple of days ago, you know, and um, sorry, I'm just, it really got me. Um, yeah, so there's all these other kind of layers of our environments that really impact how we function. So yeah, good design, but like, we need some social progress. <laughs> we need to move forward and really advance how we relate to each other and and, and address these disparities that are caused by racism and misogyny and homophobia and things that don't make people feel comfortable in public space, which is what cities are all about. Yeah. And um, isn't that weird though? Like, uh, cause I, I, it's cool. Like we should be designing to like increase social interaction. Like I, I found mm -hmm. it so weird, like moving into like big cities, uh, 
like Toronto is where I was living the last few years. And like, I couldn't believe like I went to the most population dense place I've ever lived in before. And I couldn't believe how like I, it was a little more, I had less social interaction with people. And it, I don't know, like, have you ever thought about why that happens? Like why, when we're around so many people, we might end up getting like less social interaction. Um, well, there's a number called the Dunbar number, um, which as I understand it was a number that was calculated on how many relationships we can actually maintain. Um, and it's, it was mapped onto our, I think our cortical volume. So, which is essentially, you know, your brain is only capable of having so many friends. Um, <clears throat> cities might overwhelm that. That's one thing to consider. I think the number is like 180 or something like that. Don't quote me, but uh, it's in that range. And um, the other thing is, is that if you look at what cities are built around, it's productivity. You know, Bay Street in Toronto, it's like, it's a, it's a commotion. The, the city is a place where people move through to get to work, which is awesome. I mean, like work is great. But when, you know, one thing I noticed when I lived in Toronto, I did my master's there at, at U of T. Um, coming from a city like Victoria, which, you know, goes to bed at 10 p.m. and you have free range of the sidewalk. In Toronto, I was getting like knocked over constantly by people. Everyone's just like super, you know, they're on their path. Um, so I think these sorts of environments can sometimes, uh, you know, when we're so preoccupied with everything that's going on, we kind of forget what's around us, which is why green space is so important. You know, um, Trinity Bellwoods Park in, My in Toronto favorite. Because, <laughs> it's become a, an, an institution in itself of, of what, you know, a particular crowd does uh, in the summers, but you know, it's, it, I think it's a good example of, of how space itself can be used to slow us down and maybe sit on a bench and contemplate or smile at someone, you know? Mm -hmm. And I love how you were talking about like when you were just walking down like Bay street and it's just like all that commotion and like, you're right. Like when you're around that kind of situation, you end up getting absorbed in it. Like I remember moving there, I became more like, oh, now I'm more like career oriented and I'm more like um, focused and driven and fast paced. And like, yeah, like you kind of start getting into that just from being around it. But yeah, you're right. That openness, like when you kind of go into those spacious areas, like it, it, it is a great way to just slow down. Yeah. And I mean, look at like the majority of people in, in the core of Toronto live in apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important, um, you know, a densification in, in population density and concentrating. That's very important. But the design of these spaces doesn't really facilitate connection. I, I mean, I lived at Young and Bloor um, right above the, the Marriott for like six months during my PhD or sorry, during my master's. And it was really interesting moving there from uh, Harvard and Crawford and little Italy where I was before, you know, you get out of your house, you see your neighbors and you know, there's the street life and at Bloor and Young, I didn't know anyone on my floor and I would get out of my building and, you know, uh, arrive to the hustle and bustle of people trying to rush, um, to work or whatever. And it was just like this really different kind of vibe. And, um, and I think, you know, when you look at some of the research on the impact of condominium living, uh, people, I think, do report being more lonely. So it's this interesting phenomenon. Yeah, no, it's 100%. And like now add on like the increasing prices of like these places, which aren't yeah, even worth yeah. it, right? <laughs> so like, um, how, how like do you look at that problem of like now all these cities are growing around the world? And uh, I, I think 
condos are basically the way we're solving this. Is there other ways to solve this? Or like uh, when, if we are solving it with the condo or apartments or whatever, like what's a healthier way to do this? I mean, it's a really challenging situation because if you look at, you know, when I was living in London, I spent a lot of time traveling around. I went to Berlin and I went to Paris and even London itself um, or Barcelona is another really great example. They, if you go to the core of the city or even like the, not the core, just like the city within the city limits, you know, single family dwelling units really aren't too common there. Um, which means that people live in multifamily dwellings or there's like a, a you know, a, what do you call them? Brownstone, a brownstone or those like kind of walk-ups. They have them in Montreal as well. Yeah, 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 Toronto's yeah. got them with its row housing. I mean, um, there are other ways to densify. And I think that some of the commentary, which I uh, read for my, I mean, my PhD was in psychology, but I was reading sociology just because I was interested in how people were kind of perceiving these skyscrapers. And some people um, talk about, you know, the notion that skyscrapers and really, really tall buildings are essentially ways for very wealthy people to store their money in cities. Um, And some people, I'm not, I'm going to stop saying some people I would, (laughs) I'm trying to to deflect here and not get controversial, but, uh, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I think we, we think that we have to build skyscrapers as a response to, to the necessity for density, but then you look at the number of surface parking lots that cover our cities or how big our highways have to be for people to drive in from the suburbs. You know, I think we're moving in this direction of responding to a problem that we created and instead of actually addressing the original problem. And that I think, you know, Edmonton is a really good example of this. I was working with their zoning bylaw committee on, on, on their zoning bylaws using an equity lens, but Fundamentally, that city has changed its topography and its downtown core. When you look at parking lots being turned into parks or you know turning being turned into housing, so you know I don't think we need skyscrapers. There's something that in in Canadian urbanism conversations it's called the missing middle. So you got like single family dwellings, and you've got you know uh, multi like a lot of people. Like what's happening in the middle? Are there ways to kind of get at that? I love but that. I'm not an expert on that. That's just my my opinion. <laughs> no, no, I, I get that. I get that. But I do love that whole idea because you're right. It's like there is nothing in the middle. There's single houses or then there's family houses. And it's just like, hmm. I, I think that's a great idea to kind of look at it. Um, you, So you travel like, uh, so many cities uh, like two things I want to kind of know like uh, one like what kind of lens do you have when you go to a new city because I bet you like mm-hmm. you know like I'm a comedian I'm constantly looking for like what's funny in a situation so I guess that your uh, expertise like when you go to a city <laughs> like how do you how do you look at the city when you go there and then after I'll ask after but like after that I just kind of want to know like what have you learned from like different cities around the world that we should like kind of bring back home I mean, I like chilling out. Like, I really, really like lounging <laughs> in different spaces. <laughs> I like kind of like my stress level being a good three out of 10. So when I go to a city, I think I just naturally gravitate or seek out places um, that allow me to chill out. That's, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. fundamentally, I think I have a pretty hyperactive mind. And so... Um, you know, my environment to have, does have a, not everyone is affected by their environment the mm-hmm. same way. You know, we have different temperaments and different sensitivities. I just happen to be a very, very, very sensitive person. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I look for places that inspire me. I look like for art, you know, um, what's interesting about what I look for, actually, it, it's, it's, I don't think that I'm consciously doing it. My eye just catches things, you know, and then I just kind of find myself kind of following this path to, you know, I just love going on on walking adventures. I mean, in some cities, that's a little, not the best idea. Um, you know, I was staying in, in, in Centro Historico in uh, Mexico city a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the president lives there and you've got like some of the most concentrated wealth in the country. And then right next to it, you have Tepito where if you walk down the wrong alley, you'll get like kidnapped. And I'm not like, I'm not, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Exaggerating. I was going to say exacerbating. I'm not exaggerating. I've had numerous friends from Mexico city say like, you know, don't do that. Mm. So, you know, I just try to look for places that are interesting and and you know during a pandemic it's it's been kind of yeah it's been an interesting process of, of learning about a city and experiencing it with the constraints of a pandemic that's you know trying to you know people are trying to end this thing so yeah. you can't go to the places you typically want to but it's yeah it's been interesting nice have, have so have you seen like from cities around the world that oh, yeah. like you kind of were like you know what i would love to bring this back to canada or this would oh, work, man. work really well in canada yeah i mean you know um barcelona had this really cool thing called the super blocks where they shut down streets within particular neighborhoods and then put like playgrounds and benches and there was like a racetrack on the street where cars would typically be driving you know i love that i think it's just really small injections of of joy and kind of whimsy um you know i'm a big i like riding my bike i don't own a car it's how i get around um i think cycling infrastructure is something that we need in canada you mm. got to catch up we're doing it we're doing an okay job um you know i think something else that i really noticed when i was in europe or even in mexico city um there's there's such there's such value to the investment in public art you know um, you can take like a really dreary building and turn it into something that makes someone's, you know, say, wow. And the more wows you have in a city, I think the more kind of positive energy people can kind of bounce off of and maybe use as a, as a, as a reserve when they're stressed out. Heck yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that so much, man. Like, uh, and you're right with that, like public art and stuff. I've seen it so many times where like you see something that like actually like just makes you go, wow. And like, it, it makes you feel good. It really does make you feel good. Um, mm -hmm. So let's, uh, I, I remember uh, I was like looking up on you and I, one thing I found that you said you went to Burning Man uh, back <laughs> in the day. And uh, yeah. I love this because if people don't know Burning Man, like I, I might let you explain it a bit, but like sure. they basically put like a city up in the middle of the desert for like a week. And uh, it's just like a interesting thing, but like, I want to know how this like kind of changed you and like maybe even like uh, kind of affected your direction in life or the way you look at cities uh -huh. as well. Uh, that's a really good question. Yeah. So I went to Burning Man by kind of by mistake. Um, there was a buddy of mine who I hadn't seen for a few years and I was like, man, let's hang out with the summaries in the band. And he's like, well, I'm going to Burning Man. I'm like, can I come? He's like, do you know what it is? And I'm like, yeah, it's like a music festival in the, de in the desert. He's like, buddy, <laughs> it's like, it's full on. Like you have to, prepare you got to buy all your you know flashlights and pounds of pounds of like you know 
um, uh, sunscreen and all this stuff. It's like, it's like a big kind of ordeal. Right. But, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, if we can get you a ticket, which is quite hard to do, you can come. So I ended up getting a ticket and I went right after my first, my first year or my first semester of my PhD. And I had no idea what the hell I was doing with my life. I was like, just quit my job and, you know, started a PhD and was a student again. And I think I was also like pretty disenchanted with people. I was having a tough time with what was happening in the world at the time, you know, and it seems like it never kind of ends. You get this constant like litany of bad news. But um, I uh, I went and what's interesting about it is like, I'm as a sensitive person, I hate loud noise and being dirty. And this place is like a, basically a giant dust bowl with like a very, very loud electronic music playing in every direction <laughs> at every every moment of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was probably one of the most profound experiences I've ever had because a, you're in this very surreal environment. So yeah, to, for your listeners, you know, from my perspective, Burning Man's essentially uh, an experimental city that exists for a week. And there's a lot of things that happen at Burning Man. There's a lot of things associated with it, but it's also a city of 80,000 people. So there's families with their children. There's, you know, tech bros, there's scientists, there's, you know, um, there's a camp for people with disabilities where they have a special vehicle to ensure that people in wheelchairs can experience all the art in the desert. There's like all these really wow. interest. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And, and the other thing about Burning Man is that it is, I think, I think it is exclusive. I think it, a particular type of person can access it. It's expensive and it takes a lot of time. And so there is a bit of an issue of class and access mm-hmm. and race. You know, there aren't too many people of color at Burning Man. Um, uh, but you know, all that said, I'm really grateful to have had the experience because, you know, you can't, there's no sponsorship there. Like Burning Man doesn't have like Pepsi sponsoring it, or even when DJs play there or anybody, like there's no ads, you just kind of find out, you know, and, and it's about offering something back to this community that you're a part of that is actually about non-reciprocal giving. So gifting is a big thing there. Uh, They talk about radical inclusion. So everyone's invited you make space for everybody, you know? And, and for me, like I was like bullied as a kid and I've got all these kind of traumas around not feeling included and, you know, like working that out, but you go there and you're just like blasted with like complete, you know, I don't know if, if love is the right word, but acceptance and, and interest by, by strangers. And then they end up being your friends for life. So, and you're seeing art that's like blowing your mind. Like at like 5 a.m. we went driving out on our art car to this pyramid that was built out of wood that was like burning with like little hurricanes spinning around it and people dancing around in lights. I mean, it's, a, it's insane. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, that is. You have these moments. I like took two of my best friends, uh, the last burn that happened because they canceled last year and this year's canceled in 2019. And I was like, I just can't wait for the, for the moment I can just be like, Hey guys, what did I tell you? And I remember, I remember that moment we were out on our bikes the first night there and we're biking out um, and you know, it's pitch black and there's just like lights all around. And we see this green like beam in the distance. We're like, we have to go see what this is. It's like being kids. It's so awesome. And it turns out it was a giant stag vehicle art car with like big antlers that were green. And there was this guy uh, named uh, what's his name? Seb Schwartz, I think. Anyways, he's like this German DJ that also plays a violin. 
and me and my buddies roll, roll up and then this guy starts playing the violin and like DJing and my friends like looking at me and I was like yeah <laughs> and that's just like <laughs> 10 minutes there you know so you just you just have these ex- constant experiences of awe whether that's through, through like social connection or through, through seeing beautiful art or seeing a beautiful sunrise or sunset or the landscape um you're kind of in this constant state of having your mind blown and i think that just really expands your perception of possibilities for this world for cities particularly around like how you can create community and make everyone feel welcome and give people experiences of joy um but you know for me like i said i was quite disenchanted around that time and i came back just full of hope so so i went back two more times (laughs) oh awesome (laughs) i I have to check out birdie man every time i hear a story about it i just like i'm I'm like immediately just like enthralled with it i'm like i need to get down there (laughs) let me know (laughs) all right i'm down down. all right right, uh, let's get back into your background a little bit um or into your background uh so i want to kind of want to go back to your like when you were in occupational therapy, because I think this uh, also like influenced a lot of your, um, a lot of your future. Well, of course it did. Um, so like, I'll tell you, my dad just had a throat uh, stroke. So I know with occupational mm, therapy I'm with sorry. him, yeah, yeah, it sucks, but he, he's getting better. And like a lot of with his occupational therapy, it's a lot of like, uh, doing the same exercises over and over again, like with his hand and stuff to get it working again. And that's kind of like, a lot of his thing but i think you were more occupational therapy and the mental health world right um mm-hmm. can can you kind of explain like how that works like is it the same kind of deal like you're doing like similar exercises with people over and over again to kind of help them or how does that work um well occupational therapy is really about um so occupation means how you occupy yourself so that can be any activity uh, from, you know, brushing your teeth to being a comedian, you know, it's a very, uh, very broad term. And so the therapeutic aspect is how, how people or how you can help people engage in these activities that give them a sense of well-being or meaning. Um, and so, you know, from, for, for stroke rehab, a lot of it is getting people back to be able to, you know, being able to, um, be independent or do things that they were, that were affected by, by the, that injury, right. Um, in mental health, you know, we use the same kind of lens where we're like, what is it that makes you happy? What is it that you want to do? A lot of it is vocational counseling, which is why people think occupational therapy is about, you know, job coaching, but, uh, essentially it's, it's, it's looking at someone, uh, within their context, within their environment and, and saying, what is it that, you enjoy doing or perhaps need need to do uh through a collaborative conversation with the client we don't try to we don't like telling people what to do but you know um what what is it that that makes you happy uh or what is it that you need to be able to thrive in your community and so when i worked my first job i worked for at the uh, center for addiction and mental health in toronto on on an inpatient schizophrenia unit so people would you know, have a, a, a psychotic episode in the community, maybe be, become a little destabilized. They would come back to the unit, get back on whatever, you know, medication or whatever they needed to re- reach stability. And then it was my job, you know, to work alongside the psychiatrists and the social workers to say, how do we get this person back at, in their apartment, uh, back in their home and living healthily? And what kinds of things can we give them, you know, like art, art classes or yoga or, 
maybe finding them a volunteer position because they spend all of their day alone, not talking to anybody. You know, there's these, all of these complexities to well-being, And so from the mental health perspective, it's really looking at that. And, you know, I mean, do therapy one-on-one, it's really, really diverse, but that would be, I guess, a somewhat concise yeah, <laughs> description no, I, of it. I think that's very concise. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, I, I must... ramble sometimes. <laughs> no, that wasn't rambling at all. No, that was mm-hmm. very concise. Uh, honestly, yeah. I, I bet you, you would have like just gained the ability to listen to people like so well, like I couldn't imagine Cause like you were saying, you don't want to put any of your thoughts into them because like, you might be like, Oh, you're going to enjoy this. But like, you, you want to hear what their needs are and really like address their needs. Right. Yeah. And you know, it, that's, that's a really important point. I think uh, something that I, I came to understand in my, uh, when I was working as a clinician was there's a power dynamic that's just inherent between a a healthcare professional and a patient. Like, look, think about your relationship with your doctor, right? There's like a a power differential, but for a lot of these people, particularly people that I worked with um, in, in mental health, a lot of them, you know, have a history of having their dignity violated or uh, not being believed or just a number of traumas with the system. And so there's this really, there's a big risk of, um, them kind of wanting to do what you want and in an effort to please you or, or ensure that that relationship is safe. And so, you know, that's, that's something that's extremely important. So listening is, is something that as a skill <laughs> I've learned and listening intently and asking questions to encourage people to share what they really want to do is, is a, is a tricky business sometimes, especially if they're hesitant to, to be vulnerable. Yeah, no kidding. And, uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't doubt like just being in because you were saying like you're in the ward where a lot of people had like schizophrenia and stuff like I would Mm. imagine that's a very hectic ward and like I would imagine like you're probably your mental health getting tested on a daily basis as well right oh yeah I mean I think uh anyone who works in a in a helping capacity needs to have a therapist or at least some sort of process of understanding their own thoughts and developing some sense of objectivity because, you know, you're constantly meeting with people who have experienced tremendous tragedy and trauma, you know, and you have to be able to hear that and sit with that and, and have some boundaries around the extent to the extent which it affects you. And um, I mean, I got burnt out. I, I left, I left because I just wasn't, uh, it was tough, you know? And I mean, the other thing too, was I, I was also teaching at the time, um, uh, as a sessional instructor and really enjoyed that. So that's what kind of motivated my move to my PhD. But, um, yeah, you really have to engage in self-care and that's, that's what I love about my experience with occupational therapy and being an occupational therapist is it really reiterated the importance of having time for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't please everybody. You can't, you can't help anybody if your cup isn't full. So um, there's, I mean, it's not an impossible task to be a therapist, but it's something that requires a bit more than just showing up to work. Ah, no, I wouldn't imagine. And like, uh, no, just from my dad, like he had a stroke back in uh, Christmas time. So like just being and seeing all the healthcare workers around the, or him that like help them and like how much shit they have to go through as well. I have nothing but like gratefulness yeah. and like uh, nurses yeah. are amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, honestly. Much respect. Yeah, yeah. And like, I have so much empathy for that. And like, uh, 
maybe we should like uh kind of talk uh can you tell us like what's the fulfilling part of that job because like oh, i know yeah, yeah totally. because i know there yeah. it is like that burnout part but like these people are so amazing and like I want to encourage people to go into these positions because like, if you're helping, like, this is not the, you know, so like, what, what are the, like the fulfilling parts of this job? Yeah. I should, I should say just at the time that, that I was dealing with that, I had some other things going on in my life where I just had too much going on. Like they're like healthcare is a beautiful profession and I join you in encouraging people to, to pursue it. Um, and the things that I loved about it were just the connections that you make with people. You know, that, that, that listening part, um, you know, I, I had a, <clears throat> yeah, I, I can't, you know, I can't share too many details because of confidentiality, but I had one client from a particular part of the world and they missed that part of the world. And I managed to talk to the psychiatrist on the team to see if I can get the pass for, for the day. And we were in Toronto and we went to the neighborhood where a lot of people from this part of the world hang out and we had lunch and just walked in the park and you know <clears throat> for me like I could do that whenever whenever I wanted you know I didn't even think twice when you know but for him it was just this and you just we just had such a great conversation and he was so happy and to be able to facilitate that for someone he was not going through you know was going through some a tough time and to be able to make someone smile I mean that's it's awesome. Amazing. Yeah. And, and, the, and the other thing I should say that's, that's awesome about it is just seeing change, seeing growth. Mm. You know, you, you get a lot of hope from seeing people heal and, and get healthy. Hell yeah. You're reminded of why you do what you do. So <laughs> hell yeah. I, I, yeah. I can't uh, like anytime you see growth in anything that, that there is something that reminds you about like how life works and like uh I know I fucking, yeah, I agree with that so much, man. And uh, connection, that's the other thing you said. And th I think that's so important because I think this whole podcast we've been talking about, like it does come down to connection. Like when we were talking about the cities, it's like, how do we connect more to each other, more to the environment and like stuff like that? Because like you were even saying like a lot of the clients you had when you were a therapist, uh, they lived in seclusion all the time mm -hmm. and like, mm -hmm you know, that can be like so unhealthy because you, the way you develop your worldview, like it has absolutely zero connection with other people, you know, and like that could like make you develop like really bad stories for yourself about like how the world works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of these people are in seclusion after learning that the world works in a particular way based on their childhoods, mm. you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's really complicated, but people get better. Yeah. And with other people, <laughs> with other people, with the connection, baby. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, that's uh, yeah, that's a uh, great man. Um, all right. I want to kind of like talk about your spirituality a little bit. Um, maybe can you tell us a little bit about your background, your family and stuff and like, uh, kind of sure. like how your like whole spiritual progression went. Yeah. So, um, my mom is from India from Lucknow, but ethnically my family is Bengali. Um, knows in Uttar Pradesh and she came to Canada when she was 12 in the 1970s to Revelstoke second brown family in the 70s so just hey I <laughs> was uh, I was uh, like one of the first brown families in High River Alberta so not too oh far from there gosh, okay so <laughs> you understand right? I understand I understand okay. yeah 
so you know that's my mom and my dad is from bangladesh and um he came to canada in the 80s for school and um you know our families they're we're, we're quite proud bengalis and um spirituality is a big part of the lives so my my family you know in different variations i mean my grandmother's uh, my mom's mother and my my dad's mother were are both like my dad's mother passed away about 20 something years ago but uh my mom's mom my bibu as i call her she's very spiritual and you just kind of grow up with this culture um going to the temple and having pujas at your house which are the the, the celebrations and you know, as a kid, I was just fascinated by this, this whole culture. I mean, my grandma from Bangladesh, my dad's mom came to live with us when I was like, I think four for about five years, four or five years. And I would, you know, come home from school. I didn't have any friends. I was like a nerdy brown kid. Okay. Like it, <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'd come home from school and, uh, you know, well, everyone else was playing with, playing with their friends and I'd hang with my grandma and we'd watch, um, the kind of the epics, like the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, which are kind of like the Homer's odyssey of, 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 of Hinduism. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was always just super curious when we went to India, I, you know, I was like in t- very intent that we would, um, go to the temples and the Sri Ramakrishna mission and, you know, all these, these places that pilgrims go to, to, you know, I was like seven and just like, man, let's go on, you know, hanging out with the priests and stuff. So I've just always had this kind of spiritual inclination, but, um, you know, in my teens and my early university years, and I was in my, I guess my twenties, I just kind of considered myself an atheist, like a hard scientist atheist. Um, but then I had a really rough patch, pretty severe depression. Uh, I almost like flunked, flunked out of school. And that's when I, you know, that's when I really started to um, reconnect with my sense of spirituality. And around that time as well, my mom encouraged me to, to do yoga. And so ever since then, I've, I'm very fascinated by different wisdom traditions um, and, and kind of approaching them with a sense of curiosity with a bit of skepticism, which I think is healthy as a scientist to you know, ask questions. And, um, you know, I got to the point where, you know, I've been practicing yoga for 15 years and decided to do my yoga teacher training and finish that in, um, in December. So my spirituality is really this kind of constant process of, of, you know, asking questions, self-reflection and trying to find some peace in the midst of, of chaos, yeah, <laughs> modern man. society. No, I, uh, I, I, I can see that. Like, uh. And like you got your yoga training courses done as well, eh? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was awesome. It's with my friends uh, Joel and Katiana at My Yoga in Victoria. And what I really, it's interesting because I've been considering yoga teacher training for a long time, but as a you know a an Indian Hindu, um, a lot of yoga studios are just I just can't you can't do it. yeah yeah i know that's pretty funny (laughs) you know it's like you're not saying it properly what what are you selling ghee that's my mom for what twelve dollars a jar are you kidding yeah you're making kidgery and charging like fifteen dollars to play for that stuff and we ate that stuff when we didn't have any money when i was a kid and now it's like all on in vogue and trendy and i just have a bit of a problem with that so my yoga actually they really um 
they really, I think, value and honor the tradition to the extent that the, I actually won a scholarship. They paid for half, I got half of my tuition off because they have a scholarship for um, South Asians and trans people. So oh, people awesome. who are typically like marginalized from, um, from yoga, you know, from different communities there, especially for South Asians, I think, you know, if you don't, I've never had it. I have had one Indian yoga teacher Oh really? in my life. And I've been doing yoga for 15 years. <laughs> Damn. Right. So yeah. anyways, that's my spirituality in a nutshell, I guess. Ha, 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 yeah. All right. Well, the yoga, I actually yeah. have a comedy, a comedy bit on that. Like how, uh, Ooh, I gotta watch the materialism of the yoga world. Uh, like they have like beer yoga now because of course, oh my you, need, gosh. Uh, of course you need to get a buzz going <laughs> beforehand. Don't, don't get me started. <laughs> I mean, have, I've uh, done yoga while having a buzz, but it wasn't intentional. You know? but, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sacredness, I guess, to the practice and it's, um, and then there's a whole industry surrounding it, right? Like oh, yoga uh, clothes and the drink juices that, and stuff. Isn't that what happens when like any kind of materialism or commercialism comes into, uh, comes into any kind of spirituality when something blows up, like, and it has like, cause now yoga is just like something that like, so many people are going to find and there's like money that's attached to that. So that's why this commercialism materialism comes in and they try to, you know, they try to take over, like, you know, now it's like, now it's not like, Hey, go do yoga. Now it's like, Hey, you got to buy this first before you do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a package deal. Yeah. I saw goat Mm -hmm. yoga as well. You've seen that one goat yoga. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like how you're just like completely yeah. disgusted. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, people have fun doing it, whatever. I don't want to judge people, but it's just a point of, uh, you know, I, I'm not a fan of call out culture. Uh, I think people can be held accountable for things in respectful ways that allows for them to learn from their mistakes and then move on. And then we're like, okay, cool. You get it. Um, but I've just seen some things. I mean, in Victoria, actually, I, I, commented publicly on a post that a, a local yoga studio white owned yoga studio made with them and uh, their christmas sale it was like a, a a cow doing a headstand with a santa hat photoshopped onto its foot and i'm like and you know i was like i saw it someone told me about it and i was like i don't i don't want no drama but like I thought about it and I'm like, this is just a sacred animal doing a handstand headstand with a Santa hat photoshopped onto it. And you're selling a product that you've turned into a product that my ancestors died for. Fuck that. Sorry. I don't know if you can swear, but I was like, no chance. Right. I was like, you know, and so I had a conversation with them and I held them accountable and, and now they're interested in learning more, you know, but there's a limit and and at some point just stop calling it yoga and call it like goat stretching i don't care but (laughs) yoga yoga is a very like in sanskrit it means union Mm -hmm. it means to unite you know um and it's it's a very it has a long very long history of i mean like very sacred practice to many people and i think that we should just remember that and rent yeah Mm -hmm. yeah all right. Uh, I got to ask you that question of the podcast. So, uh, Robin. Okay. God, yay or nay? Okay. Yay. 
Um, but I have to, I have to add a bit to that because, um, for me, what's really important, uh, in both science and spirituality is having a sense of humility and not knowing and knowing what you don't know. And so that's what really drives my connection. And also, you know, um, God can mean love. It can mean energy. It can mean, um, connection. It can mean, it can mean peace. It can mean mother nature. Um, so I just kind of, I guess what I would say that I, I do believe in the concept of God, but how God manifests and the language around that to me is still something I'm learning about. And, um, fundamentally, uh, through doing things like yoga and meditating, you get to a place of stillness where you might get closer to understanding what it is that you're even connecting to, but you'll never get it. <laughs> you'll never get it. That's a good one. No. That's, a good, that's a good caveat at the end there. You're never going to get it. <laughs> but uh, honestly, that's actually not the, it's better to do that than become like the enlightened guru who's like trying to, Oh my gosh. Yeah. People, you know, <laughs> no, 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 no. We're all, I think, I think we're all students, you know, and I think that we're always learning and, the one thing that my PhD taught me wasn't, you know, it taught me a few skills and ways of understanding things, but it also taught me, we don't really know too much about anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of speculation. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, like a month ago, I saw the Pentagon was releasing a report on like aliens and stuff. Like people, yeah. <laughs> they're like, we can't identify these. I don't know, you know, and like, you know, not that I'm a conspiracist, but it's just very evident, particularly when it comes to neuroscience, there's just, we still really don't know how the brain really works, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and the technology that we have from fMRI machines to EEG and all these ways of measuring the brain are still really not, there's a lot of issues, you know? So I think a sense of humility, whether you're a scientist and an atheist or a spiritual, you know, or a very, very religious person is just like, maybe if someone challenges you on something, you should give it a bit of space because I think you really grow faith and uh, understanding through, through having your beliefs challenging and sitting in doubt for a while, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree, man. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's leave uh, the pause, uh, listeners. Uh, I just want to kind of tell them, uh, especially if you're living in cities, you, uh, you give good advice on like how we can use the <laughs> cities to, for our mental health and stuff. So like uh, one thing I did hear on another podcast, you were talking about uh, even libraries, right? Like how mm-hmm. amazing these libraries, like some of these like ones in different cities are like, what else if people who are alone in a city right now um, who need to get out, where, where do you say recommend like get out to these public places and like it's good for your mental health and you'll meet people and socialize hopefully? Um. You know, I mean, parks, if, if hopefully they're open in your cities, I know it varies. Um, and I wrote a piece about this last year, actually challenging parks being shut down. But uh, anyways, if there are parks, go to the park. Uh, something that I like uh, to do to help me clear my mind and, and find some peace is riding a bike somewhere where you don't have to worry about getting run, run over by a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like going for hikes. Um, I grew up in Victoria. I feel very lucky to have access to some space where you don't actually see anybody else you know sometimes I love that yeah sometimes solitude I mean, I mean social connection is super important but sometimes a little alone time you know uh in nature is is really what the doctor ordered you know so I'd, I'd say find ways to connect to nature and and you know go look at if there's a 
area with murals or art or, or whatever, just do something outside and get some sun if it's shining. Heck yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Robin. Um, please uh, yeah. let my audience know uh, where they can uh, get a hold of you or anything you want to promote. Feel free to do it now. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, I Twitter is uh, at Robin Mazumder, uh, M-A-Z-U-M-D-E-R, and it's a Robin with an I. Uh, you can go to robinmazumder.com. Um, I'm on Instagram. Um, and if you want to email me, just go to my website and there's a contact form and I'm happy to answer any questions and continue this conversation. I really appreciate you talking about these things. Heck yeah, man. Thank you so much, yeah. uh, Robin. This was yeah. so much fun. Take care. All right. That was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at NewerKidY on Instagram or check out my website, NewerKidY.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, Podcast Network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay.